Let's turn in the scriptures to Jonah. Jonah, like the other prophets we've studied in recent weeks, highlights our glorious God incredibly. Jonah is the most biographical of the prophets, and without a doubt, he's the most popular of the minor prophets. We are almost at the midway point of our study in the Book of the Twelve, this collection of twelve writings of the prophets is the least familiar portion of scripture. And a few weeks ago, our guest speaker, Mike Brunt, preached an overview message on Jonah. And I've wrestled for a little while with whether I should preach a second study of it, and I will. Not at all because I think Mike's study was deficient, not at all, but because Jonah is so rich. I hope to show you that today. I am not going to re-preach Mike's message at all, but instead I'm going to build on it, and I'm going to especially reflect on how Jonah points us to the glory of Jesus, which is a very interesting subject considering how disobedient Jonah was. As I've consistently tried to point out in our study of the prophets, the book of the Twelve is a collection of twelve shorter writings. That's why it's often referred to as minor because they're shorter in length. These prophets are basically like political commentators who speak for God. They're God's spokesmen to kings and to nations. They're speaking to kings saying, your country is about to fall. They're speaking publicly to nations saying, you are sowing the seeds of your own destruction and your nation will collapse. They're like political commentators who are constantly speaking about the nation's corruption and they're predicting that the nation is headed for not only weakness, but total collapse. Now, Obadiah, as I pointed out a couple weeks ago when I was teaching on him, Obadiah announced that God's judgment would fall on one of Israel's neighbors, Edom. Similarly, Jonah was called by God to announce judgment coming on another of Israel's neighbors, a much larger neighbor and a much fiercer neighbor, and that is Nineveh. Nineveh was a little different from Edom, though, in that God sent Jonah there. Remember, Obadiah didn't go to Edom. Jonah went to Nineveh. That's significant because Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. They were the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh is just in ruins today. It's in modern-day Iraq near Mosul. And you may remember headlines beginning around 2014 that described ISIS destroying the ruins of Nineveh. ISIS from 2014 and 2016 and 2017 destroyed major archaeological sites of the Assyrians in Nineveh there in Iraq. In its day, in its day, Nineveh was one of the oldest cities in the world. Going all the way back to at least Genesis 10, you can find record of it becoming great then. In Jonah's day, it had more than 100,000 people in it, and it would go on in Sennacherib's day, just a few decades later, to become the largest city in the world. Nineveh was absolutely massive. And It's that city, Israel's neighbor, Israel's enemy, the largest city in the world, a city characterized by 
horrid idolatry and violence that Jonah is called to go to. Wow. This is the most famous artistic rendering of Nineveh, painted in 1853 by Austin Henry Laird. It's on display in the British Museum. Laird was a British diplomat who went to research Nineveh and ended up painting this picture. You can also find a really interesting 3D flyover of Nineveh, about two-minute video on YouTube put together by learning sites. It's just fascinating to see how massive this was. Sennacherib, when he built his palace, had an 80-room palace in Nineveh. Massive city, massive grandeur. What's difficult to see in this painting, however, is that there are statues of idols and relief sculptures of warriors everywhere. The Assyrians boasted in their strength, they boasted in their violence toward their enemies, and they worshipped false gods exclusively. That's the city to which Jonah was called to go. Now let's walk through the book briefly. Jonah 1.1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, that massive city, and call out against it. Yeah, that's going to go really well. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We know from the reference to Jonah in 2 Kings 14 that he actually was born and raised in northern Israel. And God calls him, therefore, to go about 800 miles east to Assyria, to Nineveh, 800 miles east. And what Jonah decides to do is cross the Mediterranean going due west, 3,000 miles, exact opposite direction. But we find out that Jonah can't run from God. Verse 3, he gets on a ship. Verse 4, God causes a storm to threaten the ship. Then the fearful men of the crew, verse 5, find Jonah sleeping during the storm. They wake him up, verse 6. They urge him to beg his God for mercy. And in their superstition, they're thinking basically someone must have angered the gods, so let's do all they can. Verse 7 says they basically drew straws, and Jonah got the short straw. And verse 9 says the people on the crew ask him, so what did you do? He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What's this that you've done? The men knew at this point that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea might quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up. Curl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come on you. At first, these men can't bring themselves to do so, which is a little bit of irony that these pagans are so righteous. But the storm worsened. So verse 15, they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
Chapter 2 is his repentant cry to God, presumably while he's in the fish. Or maybe it's from the water before the fish got him. We don't know. Obviously, Jonah is writing this memorable poem in reflection after a time. He's reflecting on this repentance, and he is writing a poem. I don't think we should imagine him with like an, uh, a stone etching tool in the middle of the water or the middle of the fish thinking of poetry. He uh, clearly reflects on this pivotal moment of his life in the future and writes a poem about it. It's actually not clear from the poem whether Jonah died in the whale or not. He may have died and was resurrected to life, or he may have just been near death during these three days. Either case was a miracle. If he stays alive in the belly of a fish for three days, you don't have an oxygen supply there. His life is being miraculously preserved, or he's being miraculously raised from the dead. Jonah says, verse 2 of chapter 2, that he was in the belly of Sheol, or the belly of the grave. Verse 3, he was surrounded by the waves of the ocean. And in answer to his cry, verse 6, the Lord brought up his life from the pit. Jonah proclaims with thanks at the end of verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. God rescued my life. He rescued Jonah from death. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the ground. Chapter 2, no doubt, is the most famous episode in Jonah's life where he's in the belly of this fish and God causes the fish to spit him out. In chapter 3, the Lord gives Jonah the exact same command a second time. The only difference this time is that Jonah obeys. And he preaches in Nineveh. Look at verse 4. Jonah began to go to the city, going a day's journey. It's probably indicating that he was staying outside the city and would go a day's journey, basically go into the center of the city and call out. And this is what he said, verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. According to verse 6, the king called for national mourning and fasting, giving people opportunity to admit their evil and their violence and calling out to God, verse 9, would you relent and turn from your fierce anger? Verse 10 reports, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. The final episode of the book is disturbing, and it's convicting. The final episode of the book finds this wildly successful prophet completely depressed. He's ticked at God. In his anger at God, chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I fled to Tarshish. I knew you're a gracious God, that you're merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, now, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to him, very similar to what he asked Cain, Are you right to be angry? Someone right here, maybe Ten people in here need to hear God asking you this question this morning. 
Why are you so angry? Jonah is mad at God for being gracious. Jonah is full of prejudice. He's full of hatred toward the Assyrians. He wanted God to kill them. Ironically, he was thrilled, chapter 2, verse 9, that God had saved a sinner like him. Salvations of the Lord! But he is ticked when God saves sinners not like him. And this book ends with Jonah mad at God. Last scene of the book is when Jonah has a plant that's protecting him from the sun in the middle of the day, and God causes that plant to wilt. The Lord asks Jonah a question. This question ends the book, and this question exposes Jonah's racism. Verse 10, chapter 4. Jonah, you pity the plant for which you didn't do any work. You didn't make it grow. It came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God's just pleading with Jonah. The language there is basically like, Jonah, these people are, are spiritually ignorant. And there's even tons of animals. Where is your heart, Jonah? Do you have any heart? That's how the book ends. This is one of the most familiar stories in all the Bible. But interestingly, the whale in the story only appears three times, and it's never actually called a whale. It's just a fish. We don't know, was it a sperm whale? Was it something else? We're not quite sure. But the main point of the book really has very little to do with Jonah in the fish. Many people know this story, and they don't know its point. The main point of Jonah is this. God desires to relent from executing his judgment on those who repent, no matter who they are or what they've done. This is the heart of God. God wants to relent in pouring out his judgment on people who deserve it, if they'll just repent. His heart is beating to be gracious. God is the fountainhead of grace. This is the point of Jonah. As Jonah complained in chapter 4, verse 2, I knew that you're a compassionate God, slow to anger and filled with amazing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. That's the point of the book. God is eager, eager to turn back from destroying people. That's God's desire. Jonah wanted people to die. God wanted them to be forgiven and live. Now, Mike Brunk preached a few weeks ago three points from the book of Jonah that I just want to remind us of and then build on. What does Jonah teach? Teaches that God wants to confront our rebellion as believers and graciously bring us to live in alignment with his will. Isn't that so encouraging that God is our shepherd 
He brings us back when we go astray, and he's going to bring to completion the good work he's begun. This is our God. He's interested in straightening us out and restoring us. God also wants the wicked world to repent. It's Nineveh. So that he can graciously relent from pouring out his judgment on them. Our God is willing to forgive. And Mike also stressed that God's ultimate desire for all of human history is to put on display the wonders of his grace. Isn't this so encouraging? The gospel is going to advance in the world, not because there are such faithful ministers like me. No, I'm Jonah. The gospel's going to advance in the world because the God who's behind Jonah is going to see to it that his glorious grace advances in the world. What an encouragement. Those who obey the Great Commission give their lives to the one cause that will most certainly succeed because it is God's purpose for human history to display his glorious grace among the nations. Now, I don't think much needs to be added to what Mike said. Instead, I want to build on it, and I want to reflect on several ways in which Jonah highlights Jesus. In Matthew 12, Jesus confronted the people in Galilee and his generation because they refused to commit their lives to him, even though they witnessed so many miracles that he did. He told them, the men of Nineveh will stand up when you're judged and condemn you. They repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus himself, our Lord himself, makes this comparison between him and Jonah. And in doing this, in, in stressing the comparison, Jesus is greater than Jonah, he invites us to reflect on ways in which he's greater, ways in which he's superior or better. And I'm going to suggest four ways in which Jesus is better than Jonah by negative comparison and four ways in which he's better than Jonah by positive comparison. The first is this. Jonah disobeyed God. We might say he monumentally disobeyed God. It's one of the things he's most known for, whereas Jesus perfectly obeyed God. Jonah was known for disobedience, and yet God still used him powerfully. What an encouragement. Jesus was known for perfect obedience. He never sinned, not even once. And that's how Jesus could offer salvation to others. We don't just need to take encouragement from Jesus. We need to worship him. There's no one like him. Secondly, Jonah calmed the sea by appeasing the anger of the sovereign God. Jesus calmed it by speaking as the sovereign God. You can't hear Jesus sleeping in the middle of the storm and not think about the prophet Jonah. Both of them slept in a boat despite the raging waves outside. But Jesus was greater than Jonah in that 
Jonah's rebellion caused the storm and throwing him overboard stilled it. Keeping Jesus on board and letting him speak to the storm stopped it. Jesus is greater than Jonah. Third, Jonah wanted the Ninevites to be judged. Jesus wants the nations to be saved. Jonah was marked by arrogant, prejudice, racism. And like many of his own people throughout history, Jonah thanked God for his own salvation, but didn't want it extended to others. Oh, we need to let this convict us. If our hearts are beating after God's, we are going to love others. Love others that we think are so different from us. Love others who we think, boy, I don't know if I want my kids to hang out with them. We move toward them, not away from them. The heart of God beats for those in need of rescue. Jonah wanted the Ninevites to be judged. And Jonah needed to have his racism confronted. The whole nation of Israel did. Interestingly, even in Jesus' day, the whole nation of Israel needed to have their racism confronted. You remember John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, looks out at all these self-righteous Pharisees, and he says, do you realize that God can raise up children to Abraham from rocks? What is he saying? Don't think you're all that special. You're superior to all those other people out there in the world. No. God's heart beats for the world. Jesus identified himself as the good shepherd And he said, I die for the sheep in my fold, and there are a lot of sheep outside the fold, and I must bring them. Jesus has his eyes on his sheep, and he has his eyes on other sheep. So much better than Jonah. Fourth, in his moment of darkest depression, Jonah wanted God to take his life. In Jesus' moment of darkest grief, Jesus submitted his life to God. He gave his life up. Jonah was so angry at God for being kind that he wanted God to take his life. Jesus, by contrast, was so submitted to God and to revealing the love of God, the kindness of God, that he was willing to die. And interestingly, it's actually in Jesus giving up his life on the cross that God was able to relent against The Ninevites. Paul actually says that throughout history, the only way that God was able to forgive sin is because he was pretermitting it. He was pretermitting judgment. He was reserving judgment on the Ninevites. And you say, how in the world could God just forgive all that evil? Because it was all going to fall on Jesus at the cross. Jesus submitted himself to dying for the evils of the world. Wow. So I would summarize these four negative comparisons like this. In prejudicial pride, Jonah disobeyed God's commission, eventually asking God to take his life rather than save others. And by contrast, in unselfish humility, Jesus obeyed God's commission, eventually offering his life to God as a sacrifice in order to save others. Truly, Jesus is greater than Jonah, right? We haven't even gotten to the positive comparisons. 
Fifth, Jonah was commissioned to leave Israel for Nineveh. Jesus, God the Son, to leave heaven for earth. Jesus is greater than Jonah. You might think that God calling Jonah to travel almost a thousand miles to an awful city where he might lose his life was a horrible, a hard or tough call. And you'd be right, it was tough. But it was next to nothing in comparison to the call on Jesus, who had to empty himself, leave behind the glories of heaven, become a man and submit himself to certain death on a cross. When you remember Jesus in the manger, consider him to be a little bit like Jonah, coming to hostile people who needed God's forgiveness and consider Jesus to be greater. Sixth comparison, the second positive one. Jonah proclaimed God's judgment. So did Jesus. And yet Jesus took God's judgment on himself. Jonah preached 40 days, and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And Jesus preached a much more severe judgment to the people of his own generation and to all of us who would listen to him. He preached a, about the hell of fire would come on those who are guilty of anger. He preached eternal punishment according to Matthew 25. Yet for those who deserve God's judgment, Jesus gave his life as the ransom payment to free us from our condemnation. Wow. Jonah preached judgment and he hoped it would fall. Jesus preached judgment and he died for us so that we wouldn't have to face it. He's better than Jonah. Seventh, Jonah was buried for three days in the fish. Jesus, for three days in the tomb. I want to go off on a little tangent here and just explain that that phrase in Jonah 1.17, three days and three nights, is a Hebrew idiom for a period of a few days. It's the way Hebrews spoke. Just like we talk about a couple of days. And if you look up the word couple, it means two. But we don't necessarily mean a couple, like I'm talking about exactly two days. Or the British term fortnight, 14 nights, a fortnight. It technically refers to a period that's 15 days, right? Hebrews did not use the phrase three days and three nights like our culture refers to cruises in an advertisement. This is a five-day, four-night cruise. That's not the way Hebrews use the term three days and three nights. Instead, it refers to a period of three days. Today, tomorrow, and the next day. Essentially, that's what it is referring to. And if you want to say, wait, wait, is that really the case? I'd say look at 1 Samuel 30. 12 and 13, you might just want to jot these references next to Jonah 1.17. 1 Samuel 30, 12 and 13, and Esther 4.16 and 5.1. 1 Samuel 30, 12 and 13, and then Esther 4.16 and 5.1. And you'll see that this concept of three days and three nights refers to this period of three days, or today, tomorrow, and the next day. 
Jonah's three-day stay in that fish, it was a three-day stay that turned his life around and brought God's mercy to Nineveh, foreshadowed a much greater burial that brought about the possibility of forgiveness of sins for the whole world. Jesus is greater than Jonah. Lastly, after Jonah rose, as it were, the Ninevites were rescued from judgment. After Jesus rose, people from every nation have been rescued from judgment. There will be Ninevites around the throne who thank Jonah for his ministry. But there will be people from every tribe, language, and nation who are around the throne worshiping Jesus for his death and resurrection that ransomed them, that saved them from eternal destruction. Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jesus was right to look at the people of his day and say, something greater than Jonah is here. I end with two applications. If you're a God-fearing person like Jonah, who's right now living in disobedience, running from God's commands to be faithful in some way to the Lord, maybe a faithful spouse, faithful parent, faithful at work, turn. Let God use this message to get your attention. If you're a God-fearer who's right now living in direct disobedience, turn. Stop. Go the other direction. In your distress, call out to the Lord and experience his grace. He is wanting to correct you and to restore you. That's his heartbeat for you, to show you grace and love and blessing, no matter where you're at today. If you're like the Ninevites, and you have never decisively turned from your lifestyle of ignoring God, or maybe of reimagining God, turn now to Jesus. He died so that you could be forgiven. He bore your punishment, so that if you would call to him, he would save you. God wants to relent from bringing his judgment on you. He does not want to send you to hell. He wants to forgive you. But know that if you reject God's gift of Jesus, if you reject the one who was greater than Jonah, the Ninevites are going to stand up and testify against you. The one true God is a God who loves to show grace. Draw near to him today. Let's pray. Well, God, I pray that you would use your word in our hearts to turn us back to you if we're straying, to crush our pride and our racism. I pray that you would use your word to fuel a burden for missions, praying for missions, investing in missions, going as missionaries, if you call us in that way. God, I pray that you would use your word today to draw the lost, those who are like the Ninevites, needing to decisively turn their lives. You are the God of grace. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.